Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember when I was probably around three or four years old and attending St. Mary's Catholic Preschool up in Bloomington, Illinois. And one day, a few of my classmates who had also arrived early easily convinced me that instead of waiting quietly in the classroom where we belonged for our teacher to arrive, we should probably run like wild animals through the building screaming and hiding in places where we most certainly didn't belong. I would not have come up with that plan. I was a nervous rule follower, but I was easily led down paths of mischief at the time, and so I followed these classmates around the school and church until finally, when we were in a part of what appeared to be some sort of dining area slash performance area, a cafetorium or something, someone finally caught up to us. And I'm guessing it had something to do with our total inability to act anything like stealth at that time. And whoever found us gave us a firm vocal reprimand telling us to go back to our classroom or we would end up in trouble. And I ran as fast as my awkward and terrified little legs could carry me back to the classroom where I would then hide underneath one of those finger-painting easels, which left me remarkably exposed, but my track record for unnoticed behavior that morning was already pretty weak. And I stayed there with my face covered in fear because... I was sure that the wrong I had done would cause me to face unimaginable and painful consequences for my gross insubordination. I didn't know what gross insubordination was at the time, but at three or four years old, I knew that I had done something wicked. I followed when I should have stayed. I went where I was not supposed to go, and in my shame, I went into hiding for fear of reprisal and punishment. But instead, my teacher spoke to me gently and gave me a kind look and invited me out of my rather awful hiding place and helped me rejoin my classmates, some of whom were apparently absolutely unrepentant in their shenanigans, or maybe my sense of shame was over-responsive, which is a real possibility. I had done wrong. Not only was I uneasy about the wrong I did, but I was caught doing it. My shame and fear sent me into hiding, and I did not want to be found as I waited in poor coverage, but quietly. 
I was found not by a harsh disciplinarian, but someone who evidenced the kind of care that could coerce me from my hiding place and back into the community of the class. That preschool episode is a pretty decent example of our pattern of sin. Maybe we're minding our business and somebody tries us to convince us to do something we know we shouldn't be a part of, or maybe we're bored and looking for some kind of adrenaline boost. So we go where we're not supposed to go. Maybe we're discovered and we run and hide in shame, expecting to meet with harsh correction. Or maybe we experience the thrill of getting away with it and wonder how long it can go on before we face the consequences that must surely one day be coming. For many of us, there's an anxiety in our hearts when we're missing the mark. Like a penultimate note at the end of a song, we're not at peace until it resolves. That's true for individuals, but it can also be true for a whole group of people. That's the experience of the people of Galilee and Judea in the time of Jesus. God's chosen people had received a covenant promise. As long as they lived as people of the covenant agreement that God made with the Hebrew people, they would enjoy a long life in the land that's been set apart for them under the leadership of somebody following after the line of the great King David. But that was not the case for them at this time. And it hadn't been for hundreds of years. So either they had not lived up to their part of the covenant, or God could not be trusted to keep his promise. And before we spend too much time thinking through which option must be most accurate, let's move on to our first lesson. And that's this. God can be trusted to keep his promise. God can be trusted to keep his promises. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. A devoutly religious man takes a a vow of silence as he enters into his monastic service. He joins a monastery, and he is able every seven years to speak two words to a board of elders that serve as his spiritual directors. And so he spends his time in quiet contemplation, meditation, the study of scripture, and when he has an opportunity to speak to the elders, the two words that he shares with them are cold floors. Well, all right, the elders say, thank you. And then another seven years pass. He's studying, he's praying, he's meditating. And at the end of that seven years, he goes in front of that board of elders again, and they say, you've had seven more years to contemplate. What would you like to say? He says, bad food. The elders nod and say thank you. And then he's dismissed for more prayer and contemplation. Seven more years pass. And at the end of those seven years, he comes in front of those spiritual directors again, and they say, what do you have to say? And he says, I quit. And they say, well, it's no surprise. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. Right before we encounter this song of praise, Zechariah had been made temporarily mute by God. He was serving as one of the priests who would tend to the candles, the bread, and the incense that we talked about in that place last week, the most holy place. It wasn't the most holy. It was just outside there where the altar of incense, the table of bread, and where the candle holder would stand. And so this was Zechariah's role. His specific order that week had 
responsibility for tending to that area. And while he was serving the Lord in the temple at the altar of incense, he received this message from the angel Gabriel telling him that Zechariah, this elderly man, and his elderly wife Elizabeth, who was believed to have no option for bearing a child, would have a son that would be powerful and a dedicated man of faith and a crucial part of God's plan for salvation for the world. And Zechariah balked. He said, how in the world? My wife and I are both old as dirt. There are some parts of this plan that are feeling pretty unlikely to me these days, Gabriel. Now understand that it's been perhaps hundreds of years since the Hebrew people had received a message like this. Of course, the Hebrew people had the sacred scriptures and teachings, but it had been quite some time since they'd experienced anything akin to a direct revelation, like an angel showing up and dropping some big news like this. And who should be better equipped to receive God's message the first time in decades and centuries than a priest who is serving at the altar, representing the prayers of the Hebrew people being raised to the Lord without ceasing? Well, as we'll find out in a couple of weeks, it turns out that a young girl minding her business would respond better, but Zechariah didn't exactly get it right in this instance. So Gabriel tells him he won't get to talk until this son is born and the message has been fulfilled. And so Zech walks out of the temple after having spent too long in there. And even though everyone's asking what kept him so long, he couldn't say a word. Silence. That is until the child his wife Elizabeth carries is born. And the child is about to be named and dedicated. And all the folks there for this baby's dedication are asking, why not name him Zechariah after his dad? And they looked at Zechariah, and Zech motioned for a tablet, and he wrote on it the name John. John, the name that Gabriel told him he should give this special son. And with that, Zechariah regained his voice Against every odd, old Zech and Liz become parents of a child who has a name unlike anybody in their family. And as soon as Zechariah has another chance to respond in obedience to this message from God, he composes a song of praise. That's what we're reading here. It's a song of praise given to Zechariah as a new message from God, a prophecy. The silence has ended. The God of Israel, who has always been faithful to his word, is breaking in to do something new. That was promised in antiquity. A savior would come from David's royal line. What does that mean for us today? It means that the impossible circumstances don't slow God down. It means that long periods of radio silence may frustrate us, but not the God of perfect timing. It means that our doubt cannot even stop God's plan, but our faith allows us to be a part of it. It means God is under no obligation to fulfill the promises that we make up in our minds, thinking it might be something God would do, but the Lord will keep the promises that the Lord has made. And we can trust that on sunny days, on, during pandemics, when our candidate wins, when our candidate loses, and when we gather and when we have to refrain from gathering. God's promises are not ruined. They're not even thrown off course. God will rescue, and we can trust that. And that takes us to our second lesson. God's mercy keeps us from being buried in our mistakes. God's mercy keeps us from being buried in our mistakes. The song of Zechariah goes on. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. 
I'd been eating my lunch and spending a midday moment catching my breath at the parsonage next to the church I was serving when I heard one of the most disturbing sounds I've ever heard in my whole life. It was the sound of a massive collapse with a significant ground tremor to go along with it. This congregation I was serving had undertaken to build a pretty good-sized fellowship hall with ground-level access to increase the hospitality and to make the space more accessible for people. And I had just been by the construction site earlier to document the trusses going up. But when I heard that sound, my heart became lodged in my throat. I worked in emergent and intensive care units of a hospital as a chaplain, and I did get to see some scary scenes as a part of that. But once I started walking towards the door to head over to the construction site, where I just knew something had gone wrong, I got my first glimpse of the damage. There was not a single truss left standing. It had been about 80% complete before this. They had clearly dominoed over and turned into wedges that knocked the walls outward as all the lumber that had been forming the new roof now sat on the concrete footprint underneath. The scaffolding ripped apart. I was certain I was going to discover corpses as I entered in that very tenuous worksite. And much to my surprise, my friend and the general contractor Mark was on the ground just above the trusses and moaning in pain. And I knew at that moment it didn't mean anything other than he was alive just then, which meant that he could quickly get transported to help and I would have a moment to pray with him. And so we prayed. He was placed very carefully on a gurney and they shipped him to the local rural hospital, which was basically a good place to wait until they could ambulance him very quickly to a nearby trauma center. So I met up with Mark there, and I got my first hint that maybe things were going to be okay. He was alert, but he was in obvious pain, and the nurse asked if there was anything that she could do for him, and his response was, could you bring me a Pepsi? And we sh when she said, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now, he said, well, why don't you just pull the plug right now? Mark made a full and by just about any account miraculous recovery. I've seen People suffer much more from much less than his 27-foot drop over concrete. And it could be that he's built like leather over steel, but he describes the situation differently. The physics of the situation could have slapped Mark onto the concrete with hundreds of pounds of trusses landing right on top of him shortly thereafter. But instead, what he describes is a bit of a slow-motion floating sensation, as though he were carried for a moment, so that instead of hitting his head and spine directly on the concrete, he landed his shoulder and ribs onto the much softer and layered wood. He was still hurt badly, but he walked out of the hospital 12 days later. We still remember what I consider to be one of my scariest days in ministry so far every year on the anniversary of the accident. And as far as we're concerned, God saved his life. There are times when we experience nearly the full force of ours or the mistakes of others. Certainly, we've encountered some degrees of hurt or loss because of uh, a bad choice we made, or maybe somebody else made a choice that cost us something precious. These are painful moments that can stay with us, and maybe if we're attentive and patient, we'll find that God is at work to redeem even those most painful places in our lives. But then there are times 
when it seems like we should have crashed onto the concrete with hundreds of pounds of error landing on top of us and crushing us. But for some reason, that didn't happen. It's almost like it should have happened, but somehow we were spared the natural consequences of our choices or the choices of those who put our well-being in jeopardy. How does that happen? That's mercy. That's mercy. Mercy is God's kindness in withholding the natural consequences of a fallen world. Mercy is when the brokenness of this world would lead to death, but somehow there is healing instead. Mercy is when our choices put a relationship in peril, but instead there's forgiveness and reconciliation. Mercy is when that last drink or last fix probably should have led to a last breath, but there was an opportunity to start a path to recovery instead. Mercy is when our well appears to have run dry, but an unexplainable gift of kindness comes at just the right time to make ends meet. Mercy is what keeps every day in a broken world from being so overwhelming that we just give up hope. Mercy is the umbrella that may not stop the rain, but it keeps us protected enough to see the sun shine once again. Zechariah celebrates this merciful God in his song of praise. Here is a man who needed another chance when he thought it was too late. He thought he was cursed, that his bloodline had been cut off. He knew he had questioned God, but he knew wrong. Mercy met him in the most holy place that day and told him that hope is coming in the most powerful way the world had ever seen. And his family would get to be a part of it. Not cursed, but blessed. Not doubting, but celebrating in faith. Not buried, but remembered remembered. Mercy is yours today. I love the verse in Lamentations chapter 3 where it says, the faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You haven't worn out God's patience or drained the well of God's mercy dry. When you woke up this morning, an infinite supply of new kindnesses started the day with you. New hope, a new beginning, and if you're feeling buried, have a conversation with God. Ask where you've been blind to the careful protections that God has placed in your life and give thanks for them. Name the ways that God has kept you afloat when you know for a fact that there are holes in your vessel. Where you're feeling especially vulnerable, ask God to bolster your defenses in that area and help you grow in faith, even when the consequences of a broken world make it past God's powerful defenses. Our third lesson this morning is this. Christ was born to free us from sin and death. Christ was born to free us from sin and death. Zechariah's song continues, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us in the path of peace. I know it's not the best association, but I can't hear the song, O Holy Night, without thinking of Monty Python's skit about the dead parrot. I'm sorry. 
There's a customer that's returning what was sold to him as a Norwegian blue parrot that hasn't moved since it was purchased, supposedly because he is all tired after a long squawk. But the shopkeeper now says he's not moving because said bird is sad. See, he's pining for the fjords. He's pining for the fjords. So when I hear that the world has long lay in sin and error pining, I picture us as the Norwegian blue talons up at the bottom of a birdcage. That's basically the effect of sin and error in our lives. If not immediately, it is ultimately. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death, the just reward for the things that we have failed to do that we know we should, the things we know we shouldn't that we do anyhow. The wages, the payment for that is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The world was trapped in sin and error like a dead parrot, only not quite as funny. The pining of God's people was a longing to be rescued. They thought they needed to be rescued from a Roman occupation, some sort of political situation, but it wasn't the external force that was doing the most damage from an eternal perspective. It was the internal force. It was the rebellion against God. That's ultimately what sin is, whether it's an overt act of thumbing our noses at God or just a simple act of utter disregard for a God that we don't bother to spend time with. That's the root of the illness that has symptoms like exhaustion, arrogance, injustice, and hunting for lasting significance in anything apart from God. Sin is when our lives are created by loving God to be conformed more and more into the beautiful likeness of Jesus Christ, and we instead that we have better things to do with this gift of time than to use it for the purpose set forth by the one who knows us and loves us better than we know and love ourselves. And when we're heartbroken and distraught and weary and helpless and there's a void in our hearts that longs for something that maybe we can't quite name, it's not the fjords for which we pine. It's a loving bond with a Savior whose birth is proclaimed, and whose pathway is declared by the son of Zechariah, who would come to be known by us as John the Baptist. And John's message was to repent, to turn away from evil and wrong, and be cleansed, and keep watch for the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sin of the world. Because sin sends us into hiding, It builds walls between our hearts and God's presence. But as the beginning of Zechariah's song of praise states, that distance and those walls are about to be broken because God is about to visit his people. Would you pray with me? Lord our God, we are so thankful for this gift of Jesus for the ways that you have orchestrated the movement of heaven and earth so that at just the right time, so this message of good news and of unmatched love could be shared with the world, Christ came born as an infant in a manger, introducing us to the hope of a life lived with fulfillment, not longing for a redemption that would someday come but fulfilled in the redemption that has come to dwell among us. Lord, help us to see this gift. 
Help us to understand how it is that on that holy night 2,000 years ago, Jesus has offered us an opportunity to be set free from the sin and the error that would shackle us and keep us from knowing the fullness of your love, keep us from sharing the fullness of your love. Lord, over these weeks of preparation, prepare our hearts to hear and respond to your message. Let your Holy Spirit be at work within us so that the Holy Spirit can be at work through us. And Lord, we ask that you would use this time to make us more and more like Christ. What we've been created to do. Who we've been created to reflect. A love we've been created to know and share. All this we offer in Jesus' holy name. Amen.